It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The 19th century, an age marked by rapid industrialization and technological advancement, radical political shifts from aristocracy to democracy, and groundbreaking civil rights reform. It was essentially the beginning of modernization as we know it. At this time, Great Britain was going through remarkable changes. It had battled for years with rivals France and Spain until it arose the most dominant superpower on the planet. And despite losing America to independence, it was a time of great prosperity for the United Kingdom. In many ways, the nation led the world through this time of technological and social change. But during this momentous century, one woman rose above the rest and reshaped how the world saw Britain. One who, despite being caught up in the whirlwind of change, kept a cool head and a regal demeanor. She not only saved the British crown, but also became one of the most important women in British history, and, dare I say, the world. This woman was Queen Victoria. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Today, we'll be looking at the queen who redefined the British monarchy and what it meant to be queen. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you like the show, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it helps us keep the show going. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. So without further ado, let's begin our journey into the life of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria was a woman who literally defined an era the Victorian era, from 1837 to 1901. She is best known for resurrecting the popularity of the British monarch and helping to shape the modern role it plays in British culture today. Yet few people know the full story behind this complex woman. A sheltered child, she overcame isolation and unpopularity through the strength of her own resolve. She was focused and fiercely independent, often saying, It is important not what they think of me, but what I think of them. But the story behind her rule and how truly important she was is seldom highlighted. So today we're going to pay homage to the queen that changed it all. Victoria was born in London, England on May 24th, 1819. She was fifth in line for the throne 
and the only child of Prince Edward and the Duchess Victoria Saxe-Solfeld-Coburg. Man, say that last name ten times really fast. Saxe-Solfeld-Coburg. Oh, no, I don't think we'd have time on the show. (laughs) A fair point. Victoria's father was a direct heir to the infamous King George III, the very king the United States had won independence from not more than 43 years ago in 1783. George was never that popular of a king, and towards the later part of his life, his dementia left him blind, deaf, and mentally unsound. Many blamed him for losing the American colonies, and the popularity of the crown was at an all-time low. George had three sons, George IV, William IV, and Edward I. Edward, titled the Duke of Kent, was third in line for the throne and had enjoyed a successful military career. He married the German princess, Victoria of Saxe-Saffeld-Coburg, later named the Duchess of Kent. Edward was well into his fifties by this point, and fear of his inability to produce a child crept into the royal courts. Neither of the other princes had much luck with producing legitimate heirs. Though both had several illegitimate kids from various mistresses, none were recognized by the court. Victoria was the first and only child born legitimately in the eyes of the crown. Prince Edward was instantly enamored by his daughter and bragged to any and everyone he could about her. He even brought baby Victoria to military meetings just to show her off. Sadly, Victoria never knew her father, as he died of pneumonia eight months after Victoria's birth in January of 1820. Later that month, King George III died too. Rule went to Victoria's oldest uncle, King George IV. Less than a year old, Victoria was now third in line for the throne. And while Victoria never knew her father, she knew her mother all too well. Queen Victoria once said, The greatest maxim of all is that children should be brought up as simply and in as domestic a way as possible, and that, not interfering with their lessons, they should be as much as possible with their parents, and learn to place the greatest confidence in them in all things. Such strong words from a woman who would eventually raise nine princes and princesses, but sadly Victoria's childhood lacked most of the comforts of her own doctrine. Victoria's mother, the Duchess of Kent, was an overbearing and paranoid woman. She had been previously married before being widowed and had already had two children, Carl and Theodora. The Duchess wasn't a popular woman among the royal court due to her previous marriage and domineering presence over her children, especially poor Victoria. She had also come to rely heavily on her husband's comptroller, or royal accountant, John Conroy. If every fairy tale needs a villain, John Conroy was victorious. Conroy was a conniving snake of a man who had slithered his way into Edward's favor. After Edward's death, he swooped in and offered aid to the mourning Duchess of Kent. He soon became her personal advisor. Conroy coveted being a part of the British aristocracy. He even had machinations for the throne. Yet he had had trouble rising through the ranks due to his reputation for being a weasel. It was only through his skills in accounting that he sustained himself. After Victoria's father died, Conroy used the Duchess of Kent's sorrows to get more power. He became her confidant and friend, secretly manipulating her. 
When Victoria was born, he told the Duchess of Kent that Victoria wasn't safe from her relatives, that they all sought the throne, and to tear the Duchess and her new daughter apart. The only true course of action to protect the family was isolation from the royal court, under Conroy's personal protection, of course. So the Duchess of Kent moved to Kensington Palace in the Royal Borough of London. There, she kept poor Victoria in complete and total isolation from the rest of the world. The Duchess and Conroy came up with what would be known as the infamous Kensington system. This cruel system was designed to keep Victoria weak and helpless, purely dependent upon Conroy and the Duchess of Kent. This way, Conroy could eventually use Victoria as a puppet and rule the kingdom behind the scenes once she took the throne. Victoria was forbidden to leave the premises without first consulting her mother and Conroy. She couldn't have any relatives visit her unless they were first screened by Conroy. She was to live in the same room as her mother and was forbidden to be left alone, ever. Anywhere she went, she had to have an escort, and that escort had to hold her hand at all times. Oh my God, it was prison in disguise. What a way to grow up. Why didn't any of the royal family try to stop this? They did, actually. On several occasions, Victoria's uncle Leopold and even her uncle William tried to adopt her, but it seemed the court wouldn't take away a child from a grieving mother, even if it seemed detrimental to the child. Mm, how horrible. Did the royal court not know what Conroy was up to? Well, most of the court knew Conroy was up to something, yet they couldn't prove anything. After all, Conroy had been a loyal comptroller and had serviced the Duchess admirably. What ulterior motives could he have? Mm, such a shame. The good news is Victoria was a born rebel, for the most part. Even at a young age, she knew something was up. Victoria was a warm and lively child. She loved to write and was a talented artist. She was pleasant to be around, unless she was near Conroy and her mother. She detested Conroy, who openly mocked the child, again, trying hard to break her will. She would fight back as best she could, but at times Victoria truly felt alone. Thankfully, she had a special friend to help her, Louise Lazen. Lazen was a German woman from Hanover, Victoria's father's ancestral home. She had come to Kensington to work in 1819, but became Victoria's personal governess in 1824. Victoria was five years old at the time. Lazen fell in love with the young princess. Soon the two became inseparable. Victoria often called her mother and dearest Daisy as a sign of affection. Lazen despised both Victoria's mother and Conroy. She encouraged the young princess to be independent and learn to fend for herself. She was also the woman who introduced Victoria to the idea of writing in a journal, a habit that the soon-to-be queen would take with her the rest of her life. Lazen was not Victoria's only ally, either. Her uncle Leopold, the king of Belgium, also kept a sharp eye on her and supported her with affection. He came to visit often and wrote letters checking on the poor girl. Victoria also had multiple teachers who watched over her and taught her a variety of subjects from math to science to literature. Victoria had an incredible retentive memory, a fact that didn't sit well with Conroy. Then in 1830, George IV died and William IV took the throne. 
William also had a soft spot for his niece and once again tried to adopt her. Sadly, he was barred by the royal court from doing so. They saw no immediate reason or justification to pull this girl from her mother. Still, William named his niece the heir apparent or next in the line for the throne. This excited both the Duchess and Conroy, who hoped to become the royal regents until Victoria came of age. William knew that Conroy and the Duchess sought more power, and so he decreed he would not die until Victoria turned 18. That way, she would inherit the throne free of her mother and Conroy's interference. It was also at this time that a famous story of the young queen was born. After William's ascension to the throne when Victoria was 12, Lazen slipped a genealogy book into Victoria's lessons for the day. It was from that book that Victoria learned that she was not only the last of the House of Hanover, but was next in line for the throne. Victoria had known she was royalty, but had no idea she was that close to being queen. When Lazen asked Victoria about how she felt about becoming the next queen, Victoria's only reply was, I will be good. I guess she had it all figured out. I wonder if she knew just how good a queen she would be. <laughs> Who knows? But with Victoria going on 13, Conroy thought it was time to display the princess for the first time. So in 1831, the Duchess and Victoria began a tour of the Midlands. This was the first time Victoria traveled anywhere outside of her palace home. Conroy escorted them, of course. Victoria was adored by the public as a beautiful young princess. And it was also during this time that Victoria was introduced to her distant cousin, Albert Saxe-Coburg. Albert was the same age as Victoria. The meeting had been arranged with the hopes of eventually setting up a diplomatic marriage. Victoria was aware of the setup and wasn't much interested in marriage, though she later wrote in her journal after meeting Albert, quote, Albert is extremely handsome. His hair is about the same color as mine. His eyes are large and blue, and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. But the charm of his countenance is his expression, which is most delightful. Victoria would continue to tour England from 1832 to 1835. As this went on, the Kensington system seemed to tighten. As Victoria became more rebellious, Conroy and the Duchess of Kent began to mock and dismiss Victoria more and more. They called her dim-witted and weak-minded. They did everything in their power to discredit the Queen in order to make her more subservient. Conroy also had the Duchess officially bar any of the royal family and members of the court from seeing Victoria. They even tried to get rid of Lazen, but King William refused to have her dismissed, as she was his closest ally in making sure Victoria was safe. Then, in 1835, Victoria became terribly ill with typhoid. She had been on tour and complained about being ill, but Conroy refused to stop and let her rest. Victoria was sick for five weeks. In her weakened state, the Duchess of Kent and Conroy sought to force Victoria into signing a document. This document would make Conroy her personal secretary and overseer of all her affairs. For weeks, they pressure her relentlessly, sometimes threatening not to give her aid until she signed. Well, thankfully, Lazen stopped them, blocking the Duchess and Conroy with help from the king. 
She had caught wind of them trying to get Victoria to sign the document and notified the king. King William forbade any such document from being signed until Victoria was of sound mind and healthy body. This allowed Lazen the time to nurse Victoria back to health. Afterwards, Victoria became more determined than ever to be independent of her wardens. She refused to sign the document and vowed to cut ties with her mother and Conroy altogether once she became queen. This new attitude horrified the Duchess. Her advisors pleaded with her to reconcile with Victoria. Yet Conroy convinced the Duchess otherwise, fearing the two would join forces against him. Things were about to come to a head, though. On May 24, 1837, Victoria turned 18 years old, old enough now to rule independently from her mother and the manipulative Conroy. King William IV was proud of the woman she had become. And a month later, on June 20, 1837, King William died peacefully in his sleep. Victoria remembered the night vividly in her journal, saying, I was awoke at six o'clock by Mama, who told me the Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Cunningham were here and wished to see me. I got out of bed and went into my sitting room alone and saw them. Lord Cunningham then acquainted me that my poor uncle, the King, was no more, and had expired at twelve minutes past two this morning, and consequently that I am Queen. Princess Victoria was now Queen of England at age 18, one of the youngest rulers in British history. As the new queen, she immediately removed Conroy from power. She then made her first request as queen, an hour alone, something she had never had in her entire life. Victoria now had big shoes to fill as the new monarch to a fast-changing landscape. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue our story. Victoria had just ascended the throne. She was now free from the torment and manipulation of her mother and John Conroy. Now, however, she had to put her lessons from youth to practice and win the hearts of the people. It was now 1838. This was a momentous year for Britain. Charles Dickens published Oliver Twist. The People's Charter advocates rose up and demanded new types of social reform, including equal electoral districts. And the London-Birmingham Rail became the first railway line in the capital city and launched the railway boom in the UK. And in the midst of this change, Victoria had to set up her new court. Victoria moved out of her home in Kensington and set up shop in Buckingham Palace. Her mother had to come with her, much to Queen Victoria's chagrin. So she had the Duchess placed in an apartment at the far end of the castle. After that, Victoria avoided any and all contact with her mother. Conroy remained the Duchess's servant for some time before finally being pushed out by the court in 1839 to live essentially in exile. He then fell into massive debt for the rest of his life and died broke in 1854. Lazen became Victoria's new personal advisor and was given special access to the Queen's new private chambers. Victoria also looked to her uncle, King Leopold, for guidance as she made her transition. Queen Victoria's coronation took place on June 28, 1838, 
Over 400,000 people gathered on the streets to witness the occasion. The event itself was held in Westminster Abbey. However, things didn't go very smoothly. The music was haphazardly conducted, Victoria was handed the royal orb at the wrong time, and the Archbishop of Canterbury forced the royal ring on Victoria's wrong finger. Still, nothing seemed to ruin that all-important moment of placing the crown atop Victoria's head. Victoria again wrote in her journal, saying, The crown being placed on my head, a most beautiful, impressive moment. All the peers and peeresses on their coronets at the same instant. Later that evening, the queen retired to her private quarters and watched the fireworks from her balcony in isolation. The next day, she had to acquaint herself with the new government. Victoria came into power during a time of transition for the monarchy. The regent had lost much of its power by this point, and the crown was slowly shifting from being a position of power to one of formality, a figurehead, more or less. The government had become a constitutional monarchy meaning much of the official government power was held by Parliament and its two houses, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. The Regency's power was dictated the current framework, or constitution, of those two houses and their government. During this time, two parties dominated the political arena, the Whigs and the Tories. The Whigs came from the aristocracy and clung to the monarchy for guidance. The Tories were a conservative group that sought political and social reform, moving away from a monarchy. Through most of Victoria's early years, she was caught up in the two parties' rabble-rousing. Unsure of how to handle them, she became an unpopular figure to both parties. The first of her blunders came from a false scandal involving her lady-in-waiting, Lady Flora Hastings, in 1839. Lady Hastings had been rumored to be pregnant, out of wedlock, by none other than the Queen's old nemesis, Conroy. Leaping at the chance to shame Conroy, Victoria had Lady Hastings subjected to a medical examination. However, the exam proved inconclusive that Lady Hastings was pregnant. In fact, not long after, Lady Hastings died of a stomach tumor. Victoria was smeared by the Tories, who already didn't approve of her as queen. Some even created a false campaign implicating Victoria as the perpetrator of the original rumor. As Victoria struggled with winning the hearts of the people, she had some help from Prime Minister Lord Melbourne. Melbourne was a member of the Whig Party and taught Victoria much about the current political landscape. However, as he taught Victoria, she began to lean towards favoring the Whigs. This again didn't sit well with the Tories, who argued the Queen's views should be impartial. Melbourne grew quite fond of the young Queen. Having never had children himself, he viewed her almost as a daughter. For the first two years of her rule, he was her close advisor. However, as the power dynamic shifted from Whigs to Tories, Melbourne decided to retire in May of 1839. Victoria was sad to see him go, but Melbourne had seen to it that the new prime minister would also help her learn. This new prime minister was Sir Robert Peel. Peel was a Tory, but found favor with the Queen by presenting his ideas in a clear and articulate manner. 
The queen was pleased by Peel and happily accepted him as her new prime minister, much to the delight of the Tory majority. As the new prime minister, Peel wanted the queen to trade out her ladies of the court with some Tory ladies, providing more of a political balance. This horrified the queen, who viewed her ladies of the court as friends, not political tools. What Peel had failed to mention is that of the 25 ladies, he only wanted to replace six. The queen refused to appoint Peel in a scandal that became known as the Bedchamber Crisis of 1839. Neither Peel nor the queen wanted to give in, and finally Lord Melbourne was forced to return as prime minister. Later in life, Victoria lamented about how she handled the situation, saying, I was very young then. Perhaps I should have acted differently if it was all to be done again. It seemed Victoria couldn't catch a break. That is, until October of 1839. That month, Prince Albert visited London for the second time to meet with the young queen. Victoria was impressed by his manners and how handsome he was. No longer a child, but a tall young man. The couple hadn't seen each other since they were 17. Now 19, the queen and prince quickly fell in love. So, just five days after Albert's arrival at Windsor Castle, Victoria asked Albert to marry her on October 15, 1839. Wait, she asked him? You could do that back in the day? Well, it was a bold move, but much more political than you think. Because Victoria was queen and head of the aristocracy, she was duty-bound to ask, as no lower aristocrat could ask her, due to her position at the top. Oh, still pretty cool, though. She was beside herself with joy, saying, I never, never spent such an evening, my dearest, dearest, dear Albert. His excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. He clasped me in his arms, and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness and gentleness. Really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband, to be called by names of tenderness, I have never yet heard used to me before, was bliss beyond belief. Oh, this was the happiest day of my life. The royal couple married in the Chapel Royal of St. James Palace in London on February 10, 1840. It was a wedding that set all new precedents in the Western world. This was the wedding that introduced the white wedding dress. Up until that point, people had typically worn their Sunday bests for weddings. Yet Victoria wanted to wear an extravagant white gown to match the beauty of her new husband. This act of wearing an extravagant white gown was copied over the next couple decades and into modern era. While most of Britain celebrated, some people distrusted the new prince consort. Their woes came from his German heritage, fearing he'd bring unwanted German or Hun influence into the courts. Queen Victoria thought it was much ado about nothing. That being said, she didn't necessarily want Albert involved in politics either whether it was to keep her own power or keep her love separate from the droll life of rule. However, Albert turned out to be quite the king. Albert proved quite competent in dealing with the queen's ministers and managing the queen's properties. 
He actually increased the income of the crown through investments over time and soon became her closest political advisor. He taught her to observe her kingdom not from a left and right point of view, but from an impartial observer, weighing in all options before ushering judgment. This was easier said than done at times, as Victoria was extremely independent and fiery. She was prone to getting into temper tantrums when she was passionate about her positions. Yet regardless of what their quarrels were about, the two would quickly reconcile and go back to being a happy couple. With the Queen settled in her position as monarch, Melbourne finally stepped down as Prime Minister. Peel tried once again to take office. This time, the Queen graciously accepted him as her new Prime Minister in 1840. Of course, now that the Queen was married, her rule had only just begun, and despite gaining a new ally, she was about to face her greatest challenge, motherhood. While the newly married royal couple were known for their fiery debates at times, the two were never more in love than when they were first married. Victoria thanked her uncle King Leopold, writing him saying, quote, Thank you for the prospect of great happiness you have contributed to give me in the person of dear Albert. He possesses every quality that could be desired to render me perfectly happy. He is so sensible, so kind, and so good, and so amiable, too. He has, besides the most pleasing and delightful exterior and appearance you can possibly see." End quote. Almost immediately after the wedding, Victoria became pregnant with her first child. It was perhaps the happiest time in Victoria's life, but not without its dangers. On June 10, 1840, Queen Victoria and King Albert were riding in their carriage out near Buckingham Palace when a man named Edward Oxford approached them. Oxford fired two shots at Victoria, missing both times. Armed guards wrestled him to the ground. Victoria later remembered the event, saying, I saw him aim at me with another pistol. I ducked my head, and another shot, equally loud, instantly followed. Still, Tough as nails, this didn't stop her from venturing back into the public after the ghastly affair was brought under control. This sent both her and Albert's popularity skywards. The Queen had never known such popularity. This would not be the only time Victoria faced assassination. She was threatened with death seven more times throughout her life. Yet each time, she would meet it with dignity and poise. Wow, I don't know if I could go back out immediately after being shot at. I know. It just goes to show you how strong she really was. Hmm. In November of 1840, shortly after the first assassination attempt, Victoria gave birth to her first daughter, Victoria, or Vicky as she was nicknamed. But Victoria wasn't very enthusiastic about her new child, writing in her journal, After a good many hours' suffering, a perfect little child was born. But alas, a girl and not a boy, as we both had so hoped and wished for. Yikes. Seems a little harsh. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to understand, at the time, men still held much of the power when it came to property, and that was especially true in aristocracies. Victoria wanted a son so that the power of the monarchy could stay in the family. Victoria also despised childbirth due to the pain and the fact it took her away from her duties as queen. 
But Victoria wasn't cruel to her baby. In fact, she was quite the doting parent and saw to it that her child's needs were met. She even put her old governess, Lazen, in charge. This, however, didn't sit well with Albert. He viewed Lazen as incompetent while setting up the nursery staff. Sadly, little Vicky became very ill. Lazen hired Dr. James Clark to diagnose her. He was the same man who was involved in the Lady Hastings debacle when she died of a stomach tumor two years back. Dr. Clark thought Vicky had only a minor ailment and prescribed calomel to help her. Little Vicky only got worse. Albert was furious, later learning his daughter was also misdiagnosed after bringing in a second doctor. He personally confronted his wife, demanding Lazen be removed. Victoria refused. Lazen was like a mother to her. Albert warned Victoria if their child died, it was on Victoria's head. When Vicky didn't recover, Victoria finally relented. Lazen was dismissed on the grounds of her health. She returned to her home in Hanover, Germany in 1840, but Lazen and Victoria continued their relationship through letters, staying close. Thankfully, with the right diagnosis and treatment, little Vicky eventually got better and the family returned to being happy together. In fact, the royal couple went on to have nine children total. Vicky, Edward, Alice, Alfred, Helena, Arthur, Leopold, and Beatrice. These nine children would marry throughout Europe, cementing Victoria's family legacy not just in Britain, but throughout the Western world. Still, those nine pregnancies were hard on poor Victoria. She suffered from postpartum depression through all of them and was bedridden for some time each pregnancy. This meant that Albert had to take on some of her duties while she recovered. Albert proved quite capable, of course, but Victoria resented him at times, not wanting to lose power. No doubt a sentiment left over from being manipulated when she was young. But whatever rage the two felt, it would quickly be reconciled. In fact, shortly after the birth of their first son, Edward, the couple took a jaunt to the Scottish Highlands. The couple fell in love with the Highlands and its people, so much so that it became a regular vacation spot for them and their family over the years. In fact, Albert oversaw a new castle to be built there for when they visited, Balmoral Castle. The castle is still used to this day by members of the current royal family. While residing at Balmoral, the Queen toured Scotland and even attended the Highland Games. She enjoyed her time there so much she wrote a book titled The Highland Leaves in 1842. Thanks to her book, Victoria boosted tourism to Scotland. She was adored by the Scottish. For the next 10 years of her reign, Victoria and Albert helped redefine the British monarchy. Victoria made the crown more accessible and relatable to her subjects. Though this wasn't always out of the kindness of her heart, sometimes it was out of political necessity. Despite lending her name to the Victorian era and its ideas of reform and industrialization, Victoria didn't care much for reform and tended to lean heavily towards Whig policies. She supported the aristocracy whenever possible and wanted the crown to retain some of its influence over the government. Yet Victoria was good about listening to her people, their wants and needs. 
something Albert had helped her develop through their many years together. She knew when it was time to put away personal tribulations and do what was best for her people. And the more Victoria grew in power and popularity, so did her reliance on Albert. I guess you could say behind any great woman is also a great man. No kidding. Albert became the Queen's official personal advisor and helped bring awareness to many social problems of the time. One such area was in child labor laws. Together, the two of them pushed to outlaw the use of children in dangerous factories through a series of factory acts starting in 1847 and continuing into the 1860s. They reached out to their enemies and allies abroad. One example is how they helped repair relations with France. With help from the court, Victoria hosted several galas. She invited King Louis-Philippe of the House Orleans to one. King Louis became so impressed with Britain and the Queen that when he was exiled during the revolution in France in 1848, he fled to Britain to hide. While Albert was helping Victoria, he was still out of favor with much of the kingdom due to his German heritage. At the time, most British citizens saw their country as the greatest in the world and resented any outside influence from foreign powers. It wouldn't be until 1851 that the UK finally started to open up to him. On May 1st, 1852, Prince Albert opened a showcase of the world's most advanced inventions and manufacturing works. Items included early voting and fax machines, the Koh-i-Noor, the world's largest diamond, the latest firearms, and for the first time, pay toilets. All of this, and more, were housed in a 19-acre crystal palace and would host almost six million visitors over the course of that summer. This event was known as the Great Exhibition. It was a blazing success that won Albert the hearts of the people. And while Albert finally won the hearts and minds of his subjects, Victoria continued to reshape the duties of the crown. In February of 1852, the new Palace of Westminster had been completed. The old one had burned down in a tragic fire in 1834. With its completion, Victoria decided to give an opening speech to mark the first session in the new parliament. The occasion was a hit amongst politicians and pedestrians alike. In fact, it was so popular that since then, Every queen has come to the opening of every new parliamentary session since. Victoria had not only revived interest in the crown, but also cemented new traditions for future royalty to follow. Yet she was about to be tested with her first major military conflict. In March of 1854, Russia occupied the territories of Moldavia and Wallachia in the hopes of pressuring the Ottoman Empire to give up more territory. Britain and France demanded that Russia retreat, but they refused. Thus began the Crimean War from 1853 to 1856. Victoria's role through the Crimean War was one of support and morale. She acted as a symbol of hope, leading relief committees to aid the wounded and knitting clothing for soldiers. She also visited war hospitals to thank the troops. Finally, the war ended with the Treaty of Paris signed on March 30, 1856. Britain and France were victorious. To honor those who fought, 
Victoria debuted a new Medal of Honor, the Victoria Cross. This was to be a medal not just for the lords and commanders, but all men who fought for Britain's sake. So in 1857, Victoria awarded 62 men of both common and aristocratic status with her new medal. It was the first time lords and commoners were decorated together, and to this day, the Victoria Medal remains the highest honor for Britain, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. As 57 rolled into 58, Victoria and Albert continued to redefine British royalty. Victoria became the patron of 150 institutions and dozens of charities. Albert helped develop educational museums and continued to support social movements to better conditions of the poor and downtrodden. The couple also began to tour the industrial towns, offering aid and supporting the armed forces. Sadly, dark days lay ahead for Victoria. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now the story continues. Despite a rough start, Queen Victoria had re-energized interest in the crown. Together with her husband Albert, they spent the latter part of the 1830s through the 1850s repairing the image of British royalty. By the 1860s, the two continued to endear the crown, this time with the carte de visite. Victoria and Albert took a series of 14 pictures. These pictures were sold to the public as small photographs called carte de visite. Each picture could be purchased for a shilling and a sixpence, with the entire series of pictures on sale for four pounds and four shillings. In modern terms, the whole set was about $300, a hefty price back in the day. But that wouldn't stop everyone from getting themselves a copy. Over 60,000 copies were sold to the public. You could say it was one of the earliest examples of celebrity photography and lifestyle. These photos also inspired what would become Victorian fashion. Whether you were in Europe or even America, men and women everywhere began to emulate the royal family's clothing as best they could. Sadly, as the year 1861 rolled around, things took a darker turn. In the early part of 1861, Victoria's mother, the Duchess of Kent, fell ill. Victoria finally agreed to see her mother. The Duchess broke down. She couldn't have been sorrier for the pain she caused her daughter. She sought penance before she died and begged her 42-year-old daughter for forgiveness. Victoria was speechless. She accepted, and the two spent their final moments together in peace. The Duchess of Kent passed away in March of 1861. Victoria was heartbroken, devastated even. She became so grief-stricken she developed intestinal problems and was bedridden for weeks. Man, could you imagine all those years of hate, of trying to convince your own mother how she was being manipulated but never listening, then right before she died, telling you that you were right. Talk about a shock. No wonder she got sick. I agree. It definitely took a toll on Victoria. In order to alleviate some of the Queen's stress, Albert once again took on more of her responsibilities. But even those duties were interrupted by their son, Prince Edward. Rumors were circulating that Edward slept with an actress while at Cambridge. This appalled Albert and Victoria. 
as the royal family had a duty to conduct themselves with the utmost dignity and poise. And it didn't help that Edward was heir to the throne. Albert went to Cambridge to confront and reprimand his son in the fall of 1861. But while there, Albert fell ill. (coughs) Albert had been battling chronic stomach issues for quite some time. Yet in December of 1861, they became unbearable. Turns out Albert had come down with typhoid fever. Victoria was desperate to save her husband, but no matter what doctors tried, nothing seemed to work. And on December 14, 1861, Prince Albert passed away at age 42. Victoria wrote, have been unable to write in my journal since the day my beloved one left us, and with what a heavy, broken heart I enter on a new year without him. Victoria entered a severe state of mourning, one that would last the rest of her life. She soon only dressed in black with a mourning veil. She went into self-isolation, rarely making any public appearances. She was inconsolable. None of her advisors nor her children seemed to be able to snap her out of it. She even blamed her eldest son, Edward, for Albert's death, saying... I never can or shall look at him without a shudder. For the next year, she lived in self-imposed isolation. She would only meet with her ministers and visitors on official business. Other than that, she stopped all public appearances. This earned her the nickname the Widow of Windsor. This nickname stuck with her until her end and was even used by famous British author Rudyard Kipling in a famous poem about her. The public wanted to know where their queen had gone and why she wouldn't return. Victoria retreated to her residences in Windsor Castle and to Balmoral Castle in Scotland. In fact, it seemed the only people who knew of Victoria's habits were her children. Victoria created a network of spies to look after her children shortly after their birth. Like when her son Edward married the Danish princess Alexandra, Victoria instructed Alexandra's doctor to report all health details to her directly and to include details about her menstrual cycle. That way, balls and galas could be planned around it. Not sure if that's thoughtful or creepy. (laughs) She had a tendency to micromanage all of them. Whether out of fear of losing them or maybe something left over from her poor childhood, sometimes her micromanaging was so severe it drove her children to illness. Victoria also detested any and all grandchildren while they were babies. It was the same dislike of babies as she expressed when she had her own children. She even gave her daughters, Vicky and Alice, a hard time about breastfeeding their children. When she found out that they were, she called her own daughters cows. This kind of treatment wasn't reserved for her daughters. Her sons equally faced their mother's wrath. Victoria wanted them to grow up to become just like Albert. Though she had the hardest time with her eldest son, Edward, the prince who had gotten trouble for sleeping with the actress. Edward was just like his mother in his fiery independence and passion. Yet he had his father's charm and enjoyed socializing. The two often butted heads on how to conduct themselves in public. They especially disagreed about Victoria's servant, John Brown. John Brown was a servant at Balmoral Castle in Scotland. He had served Albert up until his death in 1861. When the Queen first lost her prince, 
she often retreated to Balmoral Castle to clear her head. While there, she and John Brown became good friends, much to the chagrin of Victoria's children and ministers. Victoria loved her dear friend and often gifted him medals such as the Faithful Servant Medal and the Devoted Service Medal. She even commissioned a portrait of him. Yet rumors abound of the Queen's infidelity. The public even started calling Victoria Mrs. Brown. Victoria, of course, brushed these rumors off, calling them nothing more than the ill-natured gossip in the higher classes. Though it has never been confirmed whether or not Victoria and John Brown were lovers, it has become the subject of intrigue for historians and Hollywood films alike. Whatever the case was, John Brown was a source of great comfort in a dark time for Her Majesty. While Victoria continued her isolation, the public grew restless. Many people began to complain about having a monarchy in the first place. With France having recently overthrown its monarchy and establishing the Third Republic of France in 1870, disenfranchised Brits sought political reform and even expulsion of the royal family. With Her Majesty in seclusion, Britain's perception of Queen Victoria began to change. The people felt abandoned by a queen mother they had revered for so long. Politics were also changing. In 1859, the Tory party split, creating the Conservative Party, and the Whigs party turned into the Liberal Party. Yet no one seemed to be able to play mediator between the parties. The UK was slowly becoming a powder keg. Someone had to do something. That's when the new prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, stepped in. Disraeli was from the Conservative Party and knew that Britain needed its queen back. Disraeli approached Victoria and begged for her to return to public life, promising he'd help restore the people's faith in her. Victoria was still disinterested in returning to public life, despite the growing rise in the Republican movement to oust her. She cared little about being a public figure and simply wanted to be left to her own devices. But that changed in November of 1871. Ten years after the death of her husband, Victoria's son and heir, Edward, contracted typhoid fever, just like his father before him. Edward grew dreadfully ill, and Victoria feared she would lose another family member. Thankfully, Edward was able to make a full recovery. Victoria was relieved. Despite their differences, Edward and Victoria reconciled, or at least as best as those two extreme personalities could. Having almost lost her son, Victoria realized that her grief had driven her not just to neglect her children, but her people. The queen also knew that she could no longer let her personal grief dictate her life or that of the crown. So with help from Disraeli, the queen planned an epic comeback. Two months after Edward's recovery, Victoria held a grand Thanksgiving on February 27, 1872. Kate, isn't that our holiday? I call cultural appropriation. A different kind of Thanksgiving. This wasn't so much a holiday as it was a literal celebration to give thanks for her son surviving. It was a roaring celebration. She rode through London in a lavish carriage waving to the public. The people were ecstatic. To top it all off, she gave a rousing speech on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. She had her entire family stand with her to show unity in the face of near devastation. 
The move worked perfectly. Victoria was back. Or at least for the most part. Victoria still chose to wear black any time she went out, honoring the passing of her late husband. But nonetheless, Victoria was making public appearances and greeting her subjects. Not everyone was happy about this, including a young, restless pedestrian named Arthur O'Connor. Two days after the Thanksgiving, O'Connor waved an unloaded pistol at the Queen. He was promptly tackled by Mr. Brown and restrained. Whatever O'Connor's plan was seemed to backfire, as support for the crown was once again boosted. Victoria was popular again. Yet with her triumphant return, Victoria found most of her influence in government had been further reduced. More power had further shifted towards an electorate government and less from a monarchy, with acts like the Secondary Reform Act of 1867, which expanded voting rights to over a million more male citizens. But despite being absent from the public, Victoria still knew her people. In the latter part of 1872, she helped pass the Secret Ballot Act, which prevented bribery or intimidation in voting. Then, in 1884, she helped with the Representation of the People Act, which expanded voting to land and householders worth at least 10 pounds a year. While she tended to lean conservatively, she became a mediator between the new liberal and conservative parties. She also continued her work promoting charities and sponsoring education and cleaner hospitals. But one of Victoria's bigger moments came in 1877. Back in the year 1857, India rebelled against the oppressive rule of the East India Trading Company. The EIC had held a monopoly on trade of India for over 100 years. But with the rebellion, the EIC lost its rights to India and ownership fell to the crown. While India wasn't free, Victoria did try to rectify some colonial machinations. She was appalled by the violence taken by the EIC and pushed for greater racial tolerance as well as freedom of religion. This not only endeared her to her people, but to some of the people of India as well. Then in 1877, 20 years after the rebellion, Disraeli moved to pass the Royal Titles Act, which would name Victoria the Empress of India. Victoria grew excited by the new title and soon devoted most of her free time to learning all she could about India, though she'd never actually visit the country. Yet as Victoria was settling into her new title, her dear friend John Brown fell ill and passed away on a cold March day in 1883. On his gravestone, the queen inscribed, This stone is erected in affectionate and grateful remembrance of John Brown, the devoted and faithful personal attendant and beloved friend of Queen Victoria, in whose service he had been for 34 years. With the death of John Brown, Victoria began to feel her age. Nearly 60, she had been queen for more than 40 years, one of the longest rules in British history. To honor this occasion, Parliament planned a massive celebration, the Queen's Golden Jubilee. The Queen's Golden Jubilee was held in June of 1887. The occasion not only celebrated the Queen, but British culture at the time. It was the birth of the phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire, as Britain controlled India, Canada, Australia, Ireland, and Scotland. 
Over 50 kings and queens came in honor of Victoria. Many were related to her now thanks to the marriages of her children into the various families all across Europe. Victoria addressed the event, saying, Fifty years today since I came to the throne, God has mercifully sustained me through many great trials and sorrows. As part of the celebration, Victoria was brought a new servant from India, Abdul Karim. Essentially an indentured servant, Karim became Victoria's personal teacher, or Munshi, as she called him. He taught Victoria how to speak and write in Hindu and Urdu. His devotion and intelligence endeared him to her, and she made him her secretary. For the next decade, he helped teach about India and its affairs. Ten years later, in 1897, Victoria had her diamond jubilee. This meant she had ruled for over 60 years, a feat no queen or king had done before her. She was 78 years old. By this time, the queen was in charge of over 450 million souls worldwide. The occasion was marked as a bank holiday. Pubs were left open until 2.30 in the morning. A procession six miles long was held in celebration. Free tobacco and ale was dispensed. It was a marvelous occasion. The queen regarded the event, saying, No one ever, I believe, has met with such an ovation as was given to me, passing through those six miles of streets. The crowds were quite indescribable, and their enthusiasm truly marvelous and deeply touching. Victoria was now, perhaps, one of the most popular queens in British history, maybe even the world. But to all things, there is a season. Victoria was no longer the young and fiery queen. She was old, entering her 80s, and her health was failing. In 1901, while spending Christmas at the Isle of Wight, Victoria fell ill for over a month. She knew she was dying. She ordered herself to be dressed in Albert's gown and a plaster cast of his face be placed over her head when she died. She also requested a lock of her friend John Brown and a picture of him to be placed in her hands. Some weird requests, but it just goes to show you how special these people were to her. Plus, she was the queen, so they had to do it. On January 22, 1901, Queen Victoria died at 81 years old. The entire kingdom and the world mourned her loss. Her son Edward took the throne at 59 years old. Following his mother's example, he helped modernize the crown, ensuring the family legacy remained relevant, but at the same time, stepping aside for a more democratic government. Yet it is thanks to Victoria that the crown continues to endure. She refurbished and repurposed it into something modern and nonetheless important. Even to this day, her face is still recognized as one of the world's most beloved queens. She was, and still is, one of history's greatest figures. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, so don't forget to subscribe to Historical Figures on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network or through our website, Parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Michael Pendis and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 